0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. This is Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Hasu, who is an independent and also pseudonymous cryptocurrency researcher based in Germany. Hasu has been writing about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for some years, and I've always found his comments and research. Very interesting. He focuses not on short-term price speculation, of which there is obviously a lot in cryptocurrency, but on the longer-term aspects of the networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, how the incentives in those systems work, and how viable those systems are over the long term. Hassiv, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Sure, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me so um, i'm hasu i'm primarily a writer and researcher in the crypto space today and for the last hmm, nine to ten months i've run Deribit's research desk Deribits and derivatives and options exchange and i publish my research for them nowadays um, before crypto i played online poker professionally for around 10 years Okay.
0: So interesting uh, move from uh, poker to crypto cryptocurrency. What what's, uh, you know, what stimulated your interest in uh, in this new uh, technology?
1: Mm. So online poker died, you could say a slow and natural death, um which is pretty normal for any game that is played for real money. Um and I was looking I was looking for a new challenge to sink my time into and didn't take me that long to f- discover Bitcoin. I I had been using it um, sometimes when I was still playing poker to send money to people around the world, but um, at the time I was just mostly following their instructions, like the in- instructions of people who wanted me to, to pay them in Bitcoin instead of paying them on, say, PokerStars or BankWire. And I didn't really question what money is or what qualities a good money should have. So looking into Bitcoin as an investment didn't really cross my mind until I guess 2018.
0: Okay. I mean, you managed to do that and send Bitcoin around the world without losing any. Because most people had some pretty tough experiences, especially in the early days of Bitcoin, uh, You know, managing transfers and storage and all these quite complex things.
1: Yeah, that's true, but I only used exchanges, so I didn't okay. download the Bitcoin client. Um, yeah, in that sense, I wasn't really like using Bitcoin, Right, I was using a trusted intermediary.
0: Okay, so it's now 11 and a half years more or less since Bitcoin was launched. Uh, or maybe I should say Bitcoin launched the cryptocurrency experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, what in, in broad terms have we learned since then?
1: Mm. That's an incredibly extensive question <laughs> um, I guess to keep things simple we we learned that um, the bitcoin's architecture that Satoshi pioneered um, is sound and it works, so he got the this initial incentive design right, which in my opinion that was far from a given at the time and um I guess also bitcoin didn't really get any attention initially, right except f- from a very small um number of people who who looked into it who believed in it so it i think the main thing that it achieved is ex- it it expanded this overton window for for money you know for for money for financial services um nowadays it's much easier or it was impossible to com- compete with state money um, for the longest time. And now you could say there there is a competitor. Whether it will work out or not, I think that's that's a totally different story. But um, at least there is competition now. And I find that to be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, is it possible to, to I mean, now we're still you know, part of the experiment, but is it possible to... Put things in a broader historical context and say you know how important an invention bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have been uh i i've read that you're interested in game theory i mean perhaps from a, a perspective of game theory or from history the perspective of monetary history mm-hmm. anthropology you know how do you see things in a in a broader
1: context mm, i think realistically it's too early to tell so so far very few people are using bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to store wealth and actually transact um so the number of users is probably in the small dozens of millions which in the grand scheme of things is pretty low but i think that the overall concept behind them is sound and that this idea of a replicated database where anyone can read it and write to it and i think that is that is absolutely sound. Um, and I think when you give humans a new sandbox that enables cooperation in that way, and um, that, that, that's always, I think that great things can happen from that as a result, but it might take decades or longer before we can really evaluate the results of that.
0: Yeah, is it possible to talk in in terms of uh, broad, fa- taking Bitcoin as an example, uh, you know, of, of broad phases of development uh, since the currency was launched? Uh, you know, maybe the early years, and then the you know the early uh, boom that ended with the, the the hack of Mt. Gox, and then the couple of years after, you know, in the doldrums, then the big block size debate. And how do you see? Can you you know how do you see things in in terms of stages or shifts? And Thank where you. are we now?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so I guess in the very beginning, Bitcoin was in the eyes of most people, a proof of concept that could either succeed or fail. But in either case, like we would need a lot more real world data to make that decision because Bitcoin fundamentally relies on incentives, right? So it's often said that Bitcoin is secured by cryptography or by math. And that's, I mean, that that's all partially true, but... None of this, like none of the cryptography used or how it's used in Bitcoin is a new invention. That stuff has existed for decades before Bitcoin. So the only real invention in Bitcoin was to basically the concept of proof of work mining um, is how this database is, is secured and and who can write to it and associating a real world cost to updating the database so um so that's uh that is that is for sure in my opinion the big breakthrough and as all like as all things with incentives you know you you never know you can only guess how humans in the actual world will behave because you know humans and how they react to incentives is actually pretty messy so um that's why in my view it was far from obvious that Bitcoin's like the, the the this incentive scheme uh, that Satoshi invented that this would actually work out.
0: Yeah, and there are still many people Hatsu, who say that it won't work in the long term. <laughs> um, you know, there are there are, there are plenty of people out there who say that you know once the block reward disappears and the network has to survive on the basis of transaction fees alone, um, then people say some people say it won't you know it won't survive.
1: Yeah, 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 that's that's totally right. So, even in the Bitcoin community itself, I guess most people think that Bitcoin is secured by cryptography or they don't really focus as much on on the incentive side of things and uh, don't don't uh, give incentives the same weight that maybe I give it. So, they don't really see this as as maybe a threat to Bitcoin. But um, I think there, there's a growing number of people who also um, look at the, the changing incentives in Bitcoin due to this declining block subsidy, and um, and see it as as a growing uh, concern for the future, for sure.
0: So, where do you stand on that question? Where you know, do you th- do you think it is a big concern that uh, you know that the block size eventually will? diminished to near to zero and uh, and you know the and people will have the network will have to survive on the basis of people paying each other in bitcoin and paying a transaction fee to the miners to keep the network going
1: yeah well so i mean whether it it, it is secure or not in practice i think that will mainly depend on that's a question of how much block space there is available meaning like how much write capacity there is to uh, to the database and uh, in relation to just how how much people want to write into the database, and, and how much willing, how much are they willing to bid for uh, to, for for priority, in that in that regard, and whether fees will be high enough or not, I think that is very hard to answer. But just from a systems design perspective, I think we can say that there is a chance that. Um, it might not work out just because, like that, there, there is no feedback loop there that it could ensure that the transaction fees are definitely high enough. Mm-hmm. So, and just empirically speaking, they haven't been, um, except for maybe one year, which was 2017. But then also, I mean, there's there's so much debate over how um, how much money is even necessary, like how much the Bitcoin network as a whole even. Should spend uh, for mining in order to secure the network. So I would say it's 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 an open question at this point. Um, But at the same time, so I think Bitcoin has like another good ten years to go before this realistically can become a problem. And the good thing is, if the the incentive for miners Ever becomes insufficient, I don't see that as a zero to one moment, so it's not like Bitcoin will just disappear uh one day to to the next, but instead, like we would see slowly um the the settlement assurances of the blockchain degrade over time. so for example, there would be occasional double spent attacks against exchanges that's where miners spend, uh, or basically they they deposit bitcoin on an exchange use it to uh, buy another currency then withdraw the currency and then then they would make a rewrite so they would rewrite the most recent history in the bitcoin blockchain and then they would send that bitcoin that they originally sent to the exchange back to themselves right so that's yeah that's one way that miners can Monetize their power to to write the blockchain, um, and that's one that we see quite frequently in many smaller proof of work currencies, such as, for example, Ethereum Classic. Yes, um, we've just seen it in the last week a a double spend attack um, yeah. in the re- that that cost I guess around like five thousand dollars to execute, and it managed to steal around five million dollars. So. Right. That is one example of a coin, of a a network that is fundamentally insecure and the only way to make it more secure would be to, uh, I guess, apply like way higher, like without changing the protocol itself. The only way to like use this would be to wait really, really long times before like you perceive uh, any money that you receive there as actually final, right? Before, mm. so let's say, like two to three weeks, and that's obviously that's not a, a system that is going to be useful to a lot of people when it takes two to three weeks to to make sure. a transaction. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what we would observe in Bitcoin as well, I reckon. So,
0: yeah, but for the moment, has to the the amount of uh, computer processing power being devoted to the to the maintenance of the network is going. You know, over the last few years, it's been going steadily up. You know, it's been increasing. Mm-hmm and is, you know, close to or at record high. So, um, presume would this only become a problem if if, if that uh, hash rate started to decline or is it is it, you know, is it always a potential problem?
1: Yeah, so um, something that I'd say about hash rate, hash rate is not a reliable indicator for security for a few different reasons. One is that the amount of hash rate that you can buy let's say, for $1,000, that always goes up every year um, because new hardware is being developed, because there's there's this uh, constant Im- improvement right, in in hardware, new generations of machines coming out that have more transistors and they can run the hashing function much faster. So th- that's why it would actually... So with, with today's hardware, you could actually just... Rewrite the entire history of bitcoin's blockchain in less than one year right so even though okay. Bitcoin is actually eleven years old, it only takes one year with today's hardware to just rewrite it all from scratch if you wanted to so that that's not a real risk just giving uh you know giving you something uh, to 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 highlight okay. that um, but the second one is that as bitcoin as Bitcoin gets more expensive, um, so the price of Bitcoin goes up. Then, because the block reward that is paid to miners is denominated in Bitcoin, yeah, um, the block reward also goes up. So that's why you would expect the uh, the amount that miners dedicate, you know, that the, the amount that mi- miners invest into mining would also go up to chase that reward, which is all good, but it all like. If Bitcoin gets more and more expensive and has more and more adoption, you know, then you also have this increasing risk on on the other side, right? So um, where is the point where, um, I guess, nation states would say, okay, we need to do something about Bitcoin. We ignored it so far because it was small and didn't have a lot of adoption, but now suddenly it's bigger than gold. For example, right yeah. it's that's not today, but it could be in ten years and um, and if then the the then the incentive to to attack Bitcoin via mining is is much higher than you know y- you always have to look at this okay, so how much does spend Bitcoin on its defense relative to the incentive for a possible attacker
0: right. So it's a constantly moving target, basically. The you know this this or interplay between the defense and the attack.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so we talked about some of the potential vulnerabilities in Bitcoin. You mentioned the incentive system not being fully tested. Um, we've talked about processing power and, and the possibility of a, uh, an attack on you know that aims to double spend coins. We should talk about the strengths. And what are what are the, what are the, what are the mm-hmm. strengths of the system?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I think that Bitcoin's main strength is its ability to exist outside of the existing financial system to operate. Just the Bitcoin network in itself is completely independent. So there's, uh, I mean, you you do rely on having an internet connection and you do rely on that the miners need somewhere in the world to, you know, plug in their machines. But Otherwise, that there's like Bitcoin is not bound anywhere locally. Uh, so even if, if for example, states went after after miners, then miners could just relocate to any country in the world that that uh, has more favorable regulations um, for them. So yeah, I, I would say I would say just this this ability to compete. With the existing financial system and the existing monetary system, from without, uh, from uh, outside of that uh, existing system, that's something that we haven't really seen before. Before Bitcoin,
0: okay. And how? Um, what about the um, the moves over the last two years by governments to um, bring cryptocurrency exchanges and other virtual asset service providers within the scope of regulation by by saying that they, you know, that those intermediaries have to report, um, you know, identifying details of entities making transactions to the authorities. You know, what impact has that uh, move been having on on Bitcoin as a whole and on the you know the fungibility of different coins?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's definitely a very serious topic. I don't think it's had much um, relevance so far, or it hasn't changed anything so far. But I mean, the trend is definitely, um, I'd say, worrying for Bitcoin. That it can, even though the network itself exists completely outside of the current financial system, that the risk is that it could still be eclipsed from the outside by like very strong regulation. So in that case, it doesn't like it doesn't really help you a lot that you have Bitcoin as like a, a self sufficient system when it's itself sitting inside of a walled garden of regulation where every um, bitcoin to fiat or fiat to bitcoin transaction is uh, is uh, fully monitored and they only let you withdraw from whitelisted addresses or deposit from whitelisted addresses and, and so on so yeah i definitely see that as yeah maybe the biggest risk in bitcoin yeah. future
0: yeah we' we've recently seen with uh you know this this hack of twitter a few weeks ago uh, that the people involved in it were were picked up quite quickly through um blockchain surveillance uh, software and uh you know clearly there's uh, the, the, the authorities are getting better and better at uh, yeah. at uh, identifying you know actors and then kind of uh lighting up i suppose portions of the network
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: yeah um Let's talk a bit about other cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. Let's talk about Ethereum. Why has there been such a, you know, resurgence in interest in Ethereum over the last uh, year, year and a half?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm, I think the market, especially in crypto, which is very retail driven, is is known to have strong reflexivity in the sense that it overcorrects in both in both ways. And after the ICO boom and bust of 2017 or 2016 or 17 I think many investors were disillusioned with the project even though like in later in 2018 and then all throughout 2019 I think the fundamentals um, of Ethereum only kept getting better uh, as indicated by like applications such as Uniswap or Kyber or DYDX launching and acting as proof of concepts for investors, um, but mostly I, I saw—I think that we saw a collapse of of many more ineffective narratives of what you can use Ethereum for uh, into a much smaller and more concentrated number of narratives. So nowadays, everyone talks about decentralized finance, and that is pretty much exactly what. I and and many others as well have predicted for the last couple of years that that blockchains are useful for A, money and B, financial services. And that's it. And I think that thesis is exactly playing out right now. Um, And it's not just the decentralized finance one, but also Ether, the asset, was was always in the past, I guess, kind of treated like, okay, so we need this asset to um for the blockchain to work and um well we 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 really wish we like didn't have to use this but we do and um it wasn't really treated as money it didn't get the same or the the ethereum community didn't care as much about ether being good money in the sense that it has an auditable supply it it, like the, the 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 supply schedule is very predictable um and stuff like that. And I think we have seen a shift there where the Ethereum community and the developers have sort of come around to the idea that, well, exactly what I, what I said earlier, that, that blockchains are useful for money and for financial services and that, um, Ether is indeed pretty good money and they, they should like keep going in this direction.
0: But what about the remaining, you know, outstanding questions when it comes to the Ethereum network? You know, the, the 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 absence of a of a fixed supply limit, um, you know, the 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 debate over the change of uh incentive mechanism from proof of work to proof of stake. You now, these are some quite, you know, important questions that haven't yet been resolved whereas in Bitcoin they're kind of resolved. So, does that not detract from the uh ability of Ether to, you know, to claim money status?
1: I hmm. so I think the concerns over the long-term viability of ethereum are maybe a bit overblown um the most important issue in my mind is one that you didn't mention is the growth of um, their blockchain state to get that under control so the state of a blockchain is basically a record of who owns what so yes accounts tokens balances and in ethereum it's also any smart contract code that is, Uh, committed to the blockchain and containing state growth is so important because that is the bottleneck for the cost of running a fully validating node so that is the cost of actually interacting directly with the ethereum network without an intermediary and i'd say in ethereum you probably need or like you need hardware in the range of around 500 dollars to even run a node whereas like a dedicated one, whereas in Bitcoin, that ra- like the cost of that is more in the range of like a hundred to two hundred dollars. So yes. you, you can clearly see from that like th- that Ethereum is much more costly to use in a trustless way than Bitcoin. <clears throat> and that has created some pretty bad habits uh among Ethereum users who Mostly connect to the blockchain via trusted intermediaries today, such as the uh, the web wallet Metamask. Um, the second issue that I'd maybe pick out is the the incentives that that you talked about and so we, we already talked about the uncertainty around bitcoins uh, post block subsidy period, and ethereum is taking a very cautious Approach of having a perpetual block subsidy, so there they will always keep issuing new coins via uh, inflation. So the system, so the the, the, the upside of this is that the system will never rely on transaction fees to be secure, and if you combine that with burning the transaction fees, so we won't get into that now. But there's there's a proposal that that will most likely be implemented within like the next. Six, twelve months that would revamp how users in Ethereum uh, interact with the the market for block space. so if you then imagine that like the transaction fees that users no longer that users pay no longer go to miners but they instead get burned, then you have on the one side this inflationary tax on the holders yeah. that goes to miners, but then you also have this deflationary uh, pressure from like burning the transaction fees that actually rewards the same holders. So what, what I'm getting at is you don't necessarily have more supply inflation in Ethereum just because it has per, um, perpetual issuance, but it, it ultimately depends on how many transaction fees are being burned. So I, I, I see that, um, I mean, I know that many people don't like this uncertainty of, okay, so how high will the monetary inflation rate, rate in Ether B, but from a like f- from a security perspective, I think the upside is that this design is much more stable uh, because it it can always guarantee that miners will make at least uh, that amount of money, which in Bitcoin you really can't. So I think this always comes with like pros and cons, and I'm glad that we get to see both uh both bitcoins uh no subsidy and Ethereum's perpetual subsidy play out uh, side to side
0: what about the um the explosion of interest in automated lending protocols you know the, 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 I can see from my email inbox you know the the, the range and uh variety of um you know, different you know De- decentralized finance uh, experiments is increasing very rapidly. There are p- ways for people to lend and borrow now using these automated protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some we've had some accidents along the way, such as the, the, the temporary insolvency of MakerDAO in in March this year when cryptocurrency <clears throat> um, prices collapsed. But that seems mm-hmm. to have uh, mended itself since then. And what do you make of this uh, gigantic experiment that's going on?
1: Well, so what happened in Maker um, earlier this year? was, So you mentioned that the protocol became temporarily insolvent. So, well, insolvent means that, um, so all dye in circulation is backed by by collateral that sits in these, uh, collateralized debt positions or CDPs. Right. Um, so what, what, uh, what insolvent in this context means is not that like, um, maker was like completely broke that, but that they only had like collateral worth like, um, I think it was even still above a hundred percent, but like below the safe collateral limit or whatever. But yeah. Um, so the the way that this happened is, so usually when um, CDPs become under collateralized, then they go into uh, auto liquidation mode. And then basically people on, um, like anyone can buy this, uh, the CDP as a discount and then, uh, um basically sell sell the collateral on the market um for die or maker uh and then repay that to the system and then you know the the outstanding uh uh liabilities of maker which is the die they then get burned so then you have this change on both sides of the balance sheet right so yeah. you you lose the asset which is the collateral but also the uh, the liability which is the die <clears throat> that's how the the system really uh, capitalizes itself. Um, but or it makes sure that it doesn't go into insolvency. Um, and uh, the, the reason that this didn't work was there was actually um, a bug, or... I, I don't know how exactly it shaped out, but you know this auto liquidation process didn't work for, um, let's say, the scope of like half an hour. So some CDPs could actually... The collateral in some of these CDPs could be bought for... For zero die, you know, yes. instead of being yes. being able to to be bought for its uh, fair market value, um, which was much higher um, at the time, so uh, and that's how the system went uh, temporarily under collateralized. Um, and the way that they resolved this is that's where the uh, MKR holders come in. So that is the second token of um, the Maker system. Uh, the MKR holders are. Um, you could say they are basically the governors or the or the, the equity class of, of the system. So they earn uh, some of the cash flows or like all of the cash flows of the maker system. Um, but in, in turn, they also, if the system becomes under collateralized, then they are the ones who are being diluted as maker issues new shares of MKR and sells them on the market for die. And that way they also, again, remove uh, uh, liabilities from their balance sheet. So that's just about the, this, this part. But I think one thing that the, the Maker and DAI experiment in general has taught us so far in this crypto space is I think Maker has been absolutely brilliant in teaching us, like everyone in this space, a lot about money because especially in the bitcoin community people tend to argue that fiat money is created from thin air right but when you when you actually replicate the existing banking system with a project like maker then you realize that commercial bank money is in fact always collateralized right um because what what banks do is merely to transform um an illiquid asset such as the the uh the, your ability to repay in the future into into uh, a liquid one, such as bank deposits, and I think I think that just seeing how Maker works uh, is just such a microcosm of how the real banking system works, and I think a lot of people were able to take a lot away from that experiment.
0: But so we've been relearning the lessons of banking in a
1: in a sense. Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: But is, uh, you know, is that not against the kind of the ethos of cryptocurrency, which, you know, in, in at least in its initial days, you know, people wanted to say that they were doing something completely different from the traditional financial system. And yet it seemed mm-hmm. that in this particular case, you know, there had to be some human intervention. There had to be a lender of last
1: resort uh, in extreme market circumstances. Mm, I mean, um, so there there are reasons to prefer like, quote unquote, hard money, right, over over this kind, the kind of money that is created by a system like Maker, but I just think it's a, like if if you prefer hard money over this kind of debt money, then do it for the right reasons, right? So actually understand uh, the pros and cons of each system um, with like without going like too ideological. And I think that's that's where Maker uh, is is really helping this space or like projects similar to that. Right,
0: but I it looks as though it looks as though that some of these decentralized lending protocols are going to need some some form of lender of last resort.
1: Mm, okay, okay. C- can you expand on that?
0: Well, it, it, you know, in this in this particular case, um, you know, we, markets go through periods of, uh, of volatility uh, when liquidity can vanish completely, and even if you set the collateral level in systems like Maker at a what might seem a conservative level, um, you know, they can that, that can. That can fail in extreme circumstances, and then some form of intervention is needed
1: to reset things yeah, but the form that the form of intervention that maker used, I think that uh, that is not comparable to a lender of last resort, right because there you actually had a complete alignment of incentives there compared to a lender of last resort, which I, I would say many in this space would say creates that moral hazard and rewards banks uh, to grow so large that they are too big to fail yeah right? um but in a system like maker it is actually the equity class that 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 gets punished when something about the system goes wrong so i think as long as as long as the system like maker can still be allowed to fail um i think then uh then you don't need a lender of last resort right,
0: right. maybe a different answer if this uh, space grows to a thousand times its current size, and, the, and the, the the sums involved become you know significant on a economy wide scale.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, Maker is um, is going into that direction, right? So um, they want to. They are currently loosening their collateral policy significantly. Um, in the last half year, they have allowed collateral to be used in cdps that is not trustless that is not ether right ether is the only trustless asset on ethereum mm-hmm. um, but now they support actually these fiat backed stable coins that could be frozen by a central operator yeah or something like wbtc which is a wrapped uh, like a, f- a form of wrapped bitcoin on ethereum and these like so what actually happens here that is that CDPs can fail if, for example, the issuer of uh, WBTC or gets hacked and the Bitcoin gets stolen, right? Then you still have the WBTC tokens in the CDP, but they are no longer backed by any real Bitcoin and hence lose their market value. Right. Uh, and as I understand, they they actually want to, like they have knowingly decided to push into this direction where they want to go, uh and embrace regulation and embrace um embraces like all the collateral that real banks can use up to the point of where i'm, I'm sure they want to uh move into unsec- like unsecured loans eventually right. just like a regular bank
0: so since it's like the traditional financial system and this crypto-based system are, are converging
1: yeah to yeah to a degree i think um i mean now that makers moving into that direction that there are new projects popping up that go into the more trust minimized direction, right? So, uh, basically maker leaves, leaves a hole in that regard. And I think this, this to me is the real value of decentralized finance and just the, this technology, uh, in general is that we can have many experiments play out at the the same time that you have the sandbox for, for people just to experiment and then do whatever they want. And we can yeah. throw stuff at the wall. Some of it might stick and some of it might not. But we've never really had this in the uh, in the traditional financial system.
0: Yeah. And a final question for you. Um, what key market themes are you focusing on for the remainder of this year and next year? What, what, uh, what's, mm-hmm. what's caught your interest of late?
1: Well, I'm not much of a trader myself, but as a researcher, uh, I often like to put on the skeptic head in this industry and um, I think it'll be important to to keep uh, reminding people of the risks involved in these projects even when uh, like as it seems we're entering like a new bull market and everyone around us is exuberant and you know um, so I think that that'll be very important that will be my, like my personal theme for, for the next year and year and a half but in, in terms of market themes I think the two big ones we see and will continue to see is digital gold and is decentralized finance slash financial services on the blockchain. Um, the, the former is just very popular with investors who are afraid of a trust crisis in fiat currency. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that is maybe the big macro trend that is brewing. Um, and I, ju- I just see more and more people talking about inflation and and fiat currency nowadays, uh, maybe compared to like a few years ago. So I think that trend will continue. And well, the the, the the decentralized finance one is is pretty much for the for the reasons we just talked about, right? It's the sandbox, and it is just fascinating to see uh, what's going on there, and um, uh, yeah, and see the experiments play out.
0: Hasu, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting chat. Thank you for your time and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Paul. Money Review Podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right hand side of our homepage, NewMoneyReview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash New Money Review. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.